You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Nicholas Harrison. Nicholas is an executive relationship manager at a well-known financial services company, and he is deeply committed to impacting his community through advocacy and financial literacy. But finance wasn't the original vision he had for his life and career. Nicholas figured out pretty early that he wanted to be a dentist, And when he left his hometown of Augusta, Georgia for Fort Valley State University, he had the support and pride of a whole community behind him. But he had to return to that same community to finish his studies when he crossed the graduation stage, actually one course shy of receiving his degree. But he stayed the course and eventually made his way to Meharry Medical College School of Dentistry. Now, dental school presented its own set of challenges. And after multiple attempts at passing a required national exam without success, Nicholas knew he had a choice to make, especially because he and his then-girlfriend also had a child on the way. And he chose to formally withdraw from Meharry. It took some time, but Nicholas dreamed a new dream for himself. And today, in addition to a thriving career in finance, he and his now wife are raising their son to never fear failure, but always find the lesson in it. So here's his story. Please enjoy. Nicholas, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm great. uh, I'm honored to be a guest on this podcast. You guys have had some great conversations, and hopefully I can add to that conversation you all have carried out. And you know what? I'm going to call you out a little bit because at first you didn't want to come on the show. You know, it's it's that weird point where I'm trying to figure out as I hear all the other guest story, I'm like, do I have anything to add? What are we going to talk about? But the more I I feel everybody out and the more I hear everybody's story, I'm like, we all have that moment where we fall back, we jump up, jump up, fall back. So I said, sure, I, I definitely have something to tell. And I think, you know, we've talked about this off air, on air, I think as Black people, sometimes struggle and failure and start and stop is so inherent to our our journeys that sometimes we see it as normal, right? The thing that we have to do, what makes my story extraordinary or something that people want to hear or could draw inspiration from because it's, it's stuff that we've had to walk with and carry almost like a cloak. And sometimes we forget the magic in it, right? And the things that people can learn from it because we feel like it's our everyday life and it's what we've been living. But now doing this show for almost three years, I know that everybody we talk to, somebody gleans something from the story. So I'm glad you uh, you changed your mind and came on the show. Absolutely. And thank you all for keeping it going. You, you, you have me out more than you realize. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That makes us feel good when we're like exhausted and trying to figure out the next set of guests. I'm glad to hear that, that somebody's getting something from it. Yeah, I Sure, for sure. Okay, let's jump into it. Who is Nicholas Harrison? Um, you know, and it depends on when you meet me. Uh, Nicholas goes by Nick, the little kid from Augusta who who played baseball, football, tried to do a little basketball, um, but all star at all of that. And Nick went on to become valedictorian, so that guy who had the community thinking, um, that, that little guy's going to be something. Then post high school, you you probably met Xavier. Xavier was that guy walking around between what ages of 18 to about 25 and and really figuring out how to how to make a mark. 
um, while still remembering to be that humble kid that Nick was, uh, being raised by a, a pastor, first lady, so having those roots, and then transitioning to Nicholas, the professional. And, and all three of those have blended together to make someone who is caring, loving, but trying to walk with a purpose every day. I like that. So since you mentioned growing up, you know, the, the son of a pastor and a, and a first lady, is part of leaving for school and taking on Xavier, right, as you know, your middle name is your identity, was part of that driven by just trying to step out of the position or the role that you had to play as a preacher's kid? Um, so part yes, part no. I'll say as a preacher's kid, I, I was pretty lucky in the fact that I wasn't like the others, meaning my dad became a preacher when I was going into middle school, so sixth grade. I had two older brothers. One was in the Army. One was headed off to Albany State. Um, so I had that mix of life not being a PK and then the mix of life of being a PK. So I think I had a good balance of that. But the yes part is I wanted to be seen in a different light. You know, Nick was the one who did everything, quote unquote, right. Parents were happy. Teachers were happy. You saw me. Everybody was happy. There was never a disagreeable moment when you were dealing with Nick. So Xavier was the one who was going to be willing to take that that leap and that risk to say, yeah, that's still me, but I got a little more to it. Got it. So you ended up at Fort Valley State University. Yes, yes. Which I which I know well, uh, thanks to my brother slash producer, Demarcus, who was also an sure. alum there. Yeah. Um, so you, you talked about wanting to make your mark on the world. So what was that vision for you when you stepped onto the college campus? Um, so it began when I was, I'll say 10. Uh, at about the age of 10, I saw an interaction between my dentist and my mom. And I was just a little kid sitting in the chair and I just happened to look up and I saw a huge smile come across my mom's face. And it was in that moment, like I saw like, man, the, the dentist really just had an impact on her life. That was, that was pretty dope. And then I began to shadow and do a lot of things with the dentist because he saw how interested I was in that moment. And I saw that he was doing outreach ministries um, across the world. Um, so by the time I was walking onto the campus of Fort Valley, the, to me, I was just preparing for the next stage of going to dental school. So that's all it was. What does it take to become a dentist? But while getting there, my brother, who just went to Albany State, of course, I'm at Fort Valley, big time rivals. But I saw that college life. I'm like, OK, we got to figure out how to make this balance happen. And X is going to be the one to figure it out. Gotcha. So I'm digressing a little bit here from a personal story, even though I think it's related because I just I've been having this conversation a lot. And that is uh, talking about diversity and as a professional trying to do what I can to move the needle forward uh, with companies forming partnerships with HBCUs and schools with large, diverse populations. And even though I did not go to one, I went to a PWI, but very committed to opening the door and creating opportunities for students who are, who are at schools that may not be on the radar. And one of the things that comes up often when you're talking about uh, HBCUs and diversity recruitment and corporate partnerships is the schools that like everybody knows, right? So the Howards of the world, Morehouse, Spelman, the ones that have the huge endowments um, and 
their their names are probably the most recognizable. And I know about Fort Valley, of course, as I mentioned, because of the familial connection. And I know the amazing strides that they make with students in STEM. But the world may not know the school in the way that they know some of the other uh, more predominant HBCUs. Mm -hmm. So with you coming out as valedictorian, right, that opens a lot of doors. What drew you to Fort Valley? Um, Money. Mm -hmm. Nobody was going to be paying for me to go to school. Um, so I had, of course, we, we were in Georgia, so we got the Hope Scholarship. So anywhere I was going, I was going to go for free. Um, I had a lot of partial scholarships if I decided to leave the state, but I didn't really even really consider those because there was, again, nothing's coming out of pocket here at this point. So at, at the final hour, I had already had a room assignment and everything at another school up the street, um, a PWI. At the final hour, uh, my math teacher, from Glen Hills High School in Augusta, Georgia, a uh, man named Mr. Tompkins, very active in the local alumni chapter, said, hey, just check us out. And he came through with a presidential scholarship. So not only was I going to be getting my school for free, but it was going to be a little stipend as well as a little job. So a little money in my pocket and I go to school for free. And it's an HBCU. Oh, I, I'm, I'm there. Well, let's go. All right. So you go to Fort Valley. You are have this vision of becoming a dentist. Um, you're coming into X, right? Finding the balance of like studies, but also enjoying. And I know how y'all get down at Fort Valley. Um, so what did that balance look like for you? And were you able to achieve it and still find academic success? Balance. Um, balance was, was easy for me. Uh, because going into it, I understood that there's no going back home. So I had to make that work. Where the struggle came in was really just, am I studying properly? Um, one thing you mentioned that study, I, I was going to the library. I would talk to the teachers after about the test, about the answers being wrong, but I had no idea how to study. I had no idea how to take notes. I just happened to be gifted enough to pass the test that would be in place in front of me. If you, you give me information about a Monday, Friday, I'm going to knock that test out. Um, So, you know, I was just getting through and I was getting through well enough. Now, by the time I'm at Fort Valley and I'm starting to, to, uh, you know, favorite word HBCU, matriculate through Fort Valley State University, um, I'm I'm doing well enough to not be on academic probation, you know, maintain my presidential scholarship, be a tutor. So I had to maintain above a 3-3, I believe. I got close to to getting knocked off of that. Um, But again, I'm a personable guy. I know how to go up and talk to teachers. So, hey, Mr. Doctor, so-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, what more can I be doing here? What am I missing here? So I was able to connect those dots. Still, I I was not picking up on the, those study skills. It's just, and that's something that just plagues me throughout every point. Just the study skills are just not there. Not the habit or the want to study. It's just, I could sit down and read the same book for two hours and I'm not going to be able to tell you what a good test question is coming out of that. So shout. It just didn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. So really it's just about working hard. So then I work hard and I, I, I adopted a, the, the age old model, work hard, play hard. So I worked hard throughout the week so I could play hard on the weekends. And that's, that was my level of balance. Yeah, and I think I'm, I'm glad you brought up the study thing because we've heard that on this show as well. 
Um, and there are a lot of us who are just like naturally smart and, you know, you can remember things, total recall. So if you're in high school and, you know, the test is about just remembering what was in the book, right? That That's pretty easy, right? But when you get to the point where you've got to be able to not just regurgitate information, but engage in critical analysis, mm-hmm. if you're not studying correctly, you could go in and having no, looked at the material, but to your earlier point, if you don't anticipate the types of questions to, to be asked, there's no way you're going to be able to translate what you've studied and actually read or practiced to the test. And this is why I think um, oftentimes we talk about disparities in the educational system. There are some high schools or some middle schools that are teaching that, and there are others that aren't. So kids are being pegged as and having an inability to keep up, or they're going to college and flaming out. And it's not because they're not smart, but those disparities can lead to a lack of preparation for one reason or another. Or, you know, maybe not even just disparities, but school's not looking at the fact that a student is getting really good grades. But are you equipped to continue to get good grades when you get out of here? Um, And these are all the nuanced things that should be considered when we talk about admissions, keeping kids in school, um, which we'll get into programs after, you know, advanced degrees after undergrad. Then what does your transcript look like when you go to take uh, to go apply for a job. And though, let's not even get into standardized test scores, right? And that's how that plays into it. That's a whole other thing, which we could talk about uh, since you had dreams of going to school for dentistry um, as well. So there's all these things at play. And oftentimes I just don't believe what we look at as the markers for someone's intelligence are always accurate for the reasons that you have, the exact reasons that you've mentioned. Some just don't know how to prepare in the way to demonstrate their level of acumen. No, and that's spot on. We, we're definitely going to touch on uh, standardized tests and how that plays into my whole story. So we, we'll circle back to that one. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, let's let's go there. So you are working, um, you know, working hard during the week, playing hard on the weekends. What's your plan to go ahead, take the NCAT and then matriculate directly <laughs> to medical school? I'm, I'm going to get this HBCU speak oh, down. Yeah, we, we got um, <laughs> you know, go straight to dentistry school like after undergrad? I would say I was probably a little naive about when dentistry school was supposed to start. Okay. Like, sure, I knew I had to go to another school after this school because clearly I wasn't going to Fort Valley to become a dentist. And it's like, yeah, here's all your pre-dental courses, right? So I honestly hadn't much thought about that until my senior year came. Um, Up until that point, I was Again, checking all the boxes that X needed. I was uh, on SGA. I had, I had pledged Alpha. Um, I was elected the highest ranking undergrad brother in the state of Georgia um, while in undergrad as assistant district director. Um, I was building a network because, you know, my dad told me, circles, your life is going to be about circles, son. Keep growing your circles. In each level you go, you're going to see some of the same people at the circles you met 10 years ago. So, I was building those circles. And then came summer going to my senior year. At this point, I'm on track. At this point, everything's going fine as far as four years, I'm done and I'm out. But then it hits me, hey, when am I supposed to be taking the DAT? That's the test for dental school, DAT. And the teacher was like, yeah, we started study groups on that uh, last semester for you all. Oh, oh, okay. And it's like three of us who have hopes and dreams of going to dental school and none of us knew about it. Truthfully speaking, the people who did go to those study, study groups, I don't 
one out of like 10 of the people I knew are actually dentists right now. So mm. I don't even know who they were telling to go. I, I have no idea. Um, so I get to that point and then I realize that not only do I need to study for the DAT, there's also an extra course that I missed along the way. Mm. So that extra course delayed my graduation. So technically, although, again, checking all the boxes, looking good on paper, spring 2008, I walked across the stage because I had enough of what they required to walk. And I was just going to take one more course to finish it off. And I literally woke up on the front page of the Making Telegraph for the 2008 graduates with my hands up going across the stage. So again, to, to everybody looking on, oh, Nick X is still doing what he's supposed to be doing. That's, hey, this is what we expect out of that guy. That's, that's, he's the one, right? Um, but yeah, it was another course. With that course, now I'm going back home. Mm. And man, that, that part, the, the realization that I'm going back home put me in a, a weird mindset. It didn't make me feel bad. I just felt weird. I, that was what I was working to not do. Like I'm out now. My dad wanted me out. The, the analogy my parents always gave that he gave from the pulpit. Um, my children are like arrows. When I shoot them out, I don't expect for them to return. You know, that was that was it. I've sharpened the point. They're going to cut through whatever, you know, the so I'm out. But I'm going back home now to finish up a course and down to figure out how to study for the DAT by myself. Mm. So this brings up another interesting point. And I've been in my diversity bag lately, so I'm thinking about a lot of these things. <laughs> um, but the average four-year graduation rate across schools, all schools, um, it's either all public or private or combined, I can't remember, but it's 52%, right? So that's not just HBCUs. Mm. But when you start to get into HBCUs in the four-year graduation rate, again, if you take it out of the, the big dogs, like like Howard, I think, is at the 52 because they match, right? The, the national average. Yeah. But if you look at schools um, that are a little, like less funded, uh, less known, that rate starts to drop considerably. Mm. 20%, 17%, you know? And so if you look at that and you are a, a corporation or a dentistry school or an MBA program, et cetera, it's like, why, you know, why did it take you so long to finish? And if you look at that in a vacuum, you may not realize this, again, is representative of larger issues. Like the fact that you realized at the end that you had this right. class, right? And there were people who will hear this and say, or hear that story and be like, well, you, that's what being an adult is, you should have known. But when I think about my experience at a PWI, right, and not just PWI, but an Ivy League institution, mm. there is no way I would have gotten to my final semester and and not known that I had one more class to take. Because, and you know, I'm, in, I'm talking about the early 2000s. This is pre a lot of technological advancement. But when I when I started at Penn, there was an interface, like a program, a digital interface that told me here are all of your prereqs and everything. You have to take your core classes, the class you need for your major. And here are all the options for for each. So every semester, all I'm doing is clicking buttons, right? And the system is doing all the work to make sure that I'm on track. You see what I mean? So and there, no. there are, oh, there are resources that right. allow at some institutions to make that process easier. And so long yeah. as you're like do, doing what you were doing, doing what you're supposed to do, 
you're going to be okay. And that's not the case everywhere. And these disparities lead to, in addition to money and all this other stuff, but they lead to issues like I walked across the stage, but they're not conferring my degree for another semester because I have to take this this one class. So I'll get off my soapbox now. But <laughs> no, it's important, uh, though, but, to but talk no, about I'll, these things. And I'll say from a smaller or let's call them a mid-tier school versus the, mm-hmm. the upper-tier school, um, which is part of the reason I chose the HBCU is the environment there was such a, a loving and connected environment that you don't know what you don't have until someone like what you just described. Like in my mind, I still never would have thought about the fact that there's an interface that literally can walk you through. All I had was Mama J. Um, uh, her name is uh, Dr. Jocelyn Powell. Mama mm-hmm. J would sit me down every semester and we had to pull out the paperwork and flip through the book and say, have we done these courses yet? And Mama J was on, and she was the one who discovered, hey, Nick, did, did your counselor tell you about this? It was a random math course, and that was all we had. And she was the one who figured it out for me. She had, she had been there countless times throughout the process, from feeding me McDonald's when I didn't have any money, to letting me know about this one last class out of nowhere. Uh, but yeah, that interface wasn't there. All I had was right. interface. And I went to school, year, you know, a few years before you, which is crazy, right? So I'm talking yeah. about an interface that I was experiencing eight years before, you know, your graduation wow. year. But also that that connection and that familial culture of somebody looking out for you um, in that way is invaluable, right? And it is a part of the importance of a network and a network you can lean on and, and call on in, in times of need. Um, and, I, and I wish we, uh, I wish we put, some of us who didn't go to these types of institutions place more value on that, right? Um, as, a, as an important component of success right. and a contributor to success in the end. Um, so you end up back at home. Did you move at back home. in with your parents? Oh, back, same bed. Um, there, there's race, little race cars up on the wall. They're, they're red, they're blue, and they're green. Um, yeah, and my, my now wife was my girlfriend at that point. Obviously not bringing her back to the back room to my parents' house to see the race. I think she came out there to help me drop off luggage one time. And that was it. That was the only time I let her see that room. Um, it, so, yeah, I'm, I'm back there. So what was your dad that. saying since his whole you know, speech about sending you out into the world for you not to come back? Oh, he was good because there was a plan. OK. Had there not been a plan, which is why I was thankful for the fact that we knew, you know, six months to a year ahead that there was going to be some back backup that had to get taken care of. Okay. Um, so as long as his plan was understood, again, his plan was understood. Hey, you come in here, you're going to get a job and you're going to stay. All right. You, you got a frat, right? Your frat said they're going to help you get a job, right? Uh, yeah, that's their job. Bad. Uh, but luckily the frat, uh, one of the bros from Augusta State, that's why I'm from Augusta, Georgia. Uh, one of the bros I just happened to meet at a random party, Juju is his name. Juju got me a job at Enterprise Rental Car. So I was washing cars and delivering cars. And do you want insurance with that during the day? And uh, come home four or five hours, go in there, start clicking on an old computer, you know, just figuring it out. So how did you figure out how to prepare for the DAT, though, without a prep course? Or did you do one? How'd that work out? Um, so, I mean, for what is worth, I mean, I guess I knew how to do research, right? So the internet just started looking up some of the best DAT courses. 
Uh, I decided on one. Um, I think there was a recommendation from another friend who had used it before, but he, just like me, he had stumbled upon it. And yeah, we just ran with it. So I, I read and I took tests, took tests and I read. And from my understanding, this is a national test. The national test is only going to have so many questions. So if you can understand the variation of national questions that are going to be asked, you'll do fine. So I took the test so many times where I knew the test on the program by heart. Even if they tried to do those random questions to me, I knew that, oh, this comes with this many problems. Like I was remembering stuff like that about it. Um, so that was it. Again, it was all rote memory again. Wasn't necessarily comprehending or grasping new information, just memorization. Mm-hmm. So you come through that, get your scores back. Where did you want to go to, to dentistry school? Um, Meharry. Mm-hmm. Meharry Medical College. By that point, I had come to the realization that I need an HBCU to succeed. Not because I thought PWIs were bad, but because I knew that HBCUs were good. And I knew that with my study skills, my study habits, I'm going to need somebody to, to see where I'm falling at because I'm, just, I just, I'm not going to see it until it's too late. Um, and I just, from what I knew about HBCUs, I knew that that cushion would be there. So one time while I was shadowing, um, I met a recent graduate of Meharry and that just set my sights on it. So I guess to be fair, on that list, it was Meharry, UNC, and MCG. MCG was right in my backyard. I, I knew that backwards and forwards, MCG. And I, I guess if you think about it like the pros, I have been recruited by MCG since I was in high school, since the first mm-hmm. time they, they saw a little kid in high school about to be valedictorian who mentioned he wanted to be a dentist. But they started pulling away from me when that extra course had to come up. I didn't like that. Mm. Uh, then UNC... I was like, these fees are, are kind of ridiculous for something I'm not even certain of. And Meharry just it checked all the boxes of what I needed. Um, so Meharry was, I guess, technically Meharry was my 1B, MCG was my 1A, and then there was UNC on there. Got it. So you end up at Meharry. Now, how long, what was the gap between when you finished, when you left Fort Valley, so walked across the stage, you left Fort Valley, and then actually started at Meharry? Uh, one year. One year. One year. I, made, I barely made the last cycle of interviews because, of course, I'm trying to study for the test during the summer while I'm trying to take this, I think it was like Cal 3 or something, I some level of math that I don't require in any aspect of my life. Um, so I'm studying for that test. The end of the the application cycle is coming up and then I finally get my scores back. And then I, I'm having those sent off to those different schools. So luckily I made it in that last interview phase. Got it. So now knowing your history about studying and not feeling like you knew how to study and all those things, we all know like that first year of any professional degree program is not a game for nope. most people. So what was it like for you? Um, Exactly like you would expect. It was a, it was a whirlwind to me. Like there were absolute moments where I'm like, "What am I doing here?" Um, wow, that like I'm looking at other people like, "Oh, they got it. Like they belong here. I don't belong here. What am I?" Then came a remediation of a course or two here and there, mm. and 
you know, all my, my desk mates. So at this point, we're all sitting in alphabetical order everywhere we go. My desk mates are, are knocking the test out. And, and I'm sitting here like, oh, I got to take the test again? Okay. So that first year was a lot of me meeting the fact. That was when I really knew that I had issues studying. And at that point, to Meharry's credit, they, the professors fully recognized that I was engaged in every class, showing up to every class, answering questions real time, picking up on philosophies and understanding. But they saw that I wasn't doing well on the test, and they sat me down. And we had a, a, a conversation about how to study and prepare for this class or this test and, and how to go about getting proper um, study habits and utilizing some of the online, not online, some of the on-campus resources of people who were able to do tutorial services. Um, so, you know, I made the right choice from that aspect because had I not been at Meharry, uh, there were some of my classmates who, def- who, who had nervous breakdowns. And I haven't seen them since. I believe I could have been one of those had I been at a different institution. And, you know, that I've traded notes and war stories with people with advanced degrees all the time. And we all have those stories, right? Because you do, you're in the same section or whatever, you see the same people all the time. And I will never forget coming back after that first winter break mm-hmm. and after that first summer. And people just weren't there. Like, it's you don't know there. what happened to them. You don't like they just literally were like, and no, like I I can't do this. So for, for whatever reason. Um, and what's sobering about that is you think of a lot of these people work their entire lives, their entire academic journey to get to this point yeah. and flame out for one reason or another. Yeah. Yeah. But it's that also was, that was scary. Mm-hmm. So talk to me. So it sounds like Harry was supportive. Uh, they were working with you to make sure that you had the tools necessary to succeed. But at some point, things took a turn. Is that right? It just, it was a natural progression of this, this ain't it, Chief. Mm. It was the natural progression of that. Um, So I'm making it, I've made it through year two. So I passed the test, um, barely getting by on paper, right? Teachers obviously realizing that I'm competent enough to to be a practicing physician at this point. So they, in themselves, they didn't have any real reason to tell me, no, don't keep going forward. Um, but they, they, they could tell the difference between a, a good test taker and um, somebody who's understanding these concepts. So I was fine conceptually, just the test taking, where it really started to meet itself back to these standardized tests. This is out of Meharry's control. Um, part one, I think is what it was called, part one. Um, in dental school. This is a national test that you can take, just depending on your school and how it's structured. For Meharry, I believe it's just the end of the second year. It could be the end of the first year and the second year if you don't pass all the parts, first year, but whatever. So that test was was the one that changed it all. That, That was the wall that I just couldn't get through. I took that national test three times. Wow. First time... Like I, I was so for those who don't understand where Meharry is, Meharry is in the heart of Nashville, Tennessee, across the street from Fisk University, down the street from TSU. That story and that hub has a beautiful story and journey of its own about black education, survival, all those things. Directly across the bridge, less than five minute drive is Vanderbilt University. Like most um, black areas of town and uh, well to do or affluent areas of town. 
you cross that bridge through the Vanderbilt area, it looked completely different. So I'm at Vanderbilt studying countless hours. We had access through the partnership that Harry has with Vanderbilt, access to their library resources, um, beautiful library. And I'm in there, again, studying um, at the end of my first year, I'm doing that. At the end of my second year, I'm doing that. And then I'm sat down at the end of my second year after failing my second time. And they say, you cannot continue in this program, but we're going to allow you to be enrolled in the remediation program so that you can get your student loans. Um, of course, I'm in you know, professional school, so I don't have a job to support myself, all those things. And all I'm doing is studying for six months straight wow. to take this test one more time. Studying, studying, Vanderbilt every day. The, the clerks know me at Vanderbilt. My crew knows where I'm at when they're in the lab, when they're cutting teeth at this point. Um, you know, everybody knows Nick. So at this point, I'm back to, to Nick again, not exiting. Nick is at Vandy. Nick, Nick is at Vandy. He's studying. Let him do his thing. Weekends, we'll link up. And I take that test one more time, the third time, and I fail by one point. Oh, my gosh. One point. And for those who don't understand how national tests work, and I'll just speak for the dental school test, your score is based on the other test takers at that time. So a 70 isn't always a 70. There's one semester where that 70 could be a 73 or that 70 could be a 67. So it's a fluctuating score. So for all I know, this one time that I got a one point could have been the time it could have been a 75 which would have been passing, but it's a 72. And all I need is a 73 to go to my third year. And, um, and then I have to have that, that real conversation. And that's in the backdrop of the fact that not only am I a one point shy, but at this point, my then girlfriend has now moved up here, not living with me, but she's in the area doing her own graduate studies um, at, uh, in Murfreesboro at MTSU up the street from me but close enough where we're seeing each other often. So my then girlfriend is now also pregnant. Mm. So I got one point. I failed. The pastor's kid has now uh, been shacking up and, and has a young lady with child that he's not married to. And now I possibly have to go back to Augusta, the, the, the place where I was supposed to be the one to come back and pull out a few more people. You know, I was... And this is where all of it starts to hit. I was the one when, when literally the, the dope boys would come out and they would say, all right, Nick, it's time for you to go home. We got work to do. Mm -hmm. you, you're not the one supposed to be out here. You're either going to college on a football or academic scholarship, Nick. Oh, them boys around town, they, they said something about you. We got them. Don't, don't even worry about that, Nick. So I was that one who, who had the, you know, the hood behind me. Mm -hmm. um, definitely don't want to put any extra sauce on that. I wasn't part of the life. Close enough to see some things. You know, we were what I would call low middle class family, two parent household. So we all had homes, not apartments type thing. But it was definitely you could have made the wrong choice at any time. Mm -hmm. you, you saw it. You know, friends have been killed. You know, things. So all of that, that stuff happened. But again, Nick, you're the one who's supposed to make. It. Stop. Stop playing. So now I'm about to be a father and I'm about to be a failure at the same time. Wow. So where, what does all that mean? So I'm stuck now. I don't know. And, and that's what I got to figure out from that point. Um, go ahead. 
Now, after so after that failing by one point, was Meharry like, there's nothing we can do for you? Like, you have to leave? Or did you make that choice? Great question. Um, so at each one of these points, I've sat down with various levels of professors and administrators. Um, they know my secret. At this point, I'm on a remediation program. So I'm checking in. Um, remediation program. They're making sure that I'm getting all my study hours in because I have to talk to certain people. Um, at this point, I've been prescribed glasses because they said, hey, maybe you can't see the words on the test. Maybe that's why you're failing. So we're pulling out all stops. I said that to say they know me by now. So now we're having that conversation of, hey, Nick, we, we already got your scores back. I know you didn't get them in the mail yet. So they actually had the scores before I had them. So I'm called in. One of the unfortunate part, uh, unfortunate parts of the point in which I had to make a transition, we were also transitioning college presidents. Mm-hmm. So the, the lady who had the final sign off was somebody who I had no prior relationship with. Everybody else, I, I did. So that helped. But the final sign off, of course, comes from somebody who I don't have that relationship with. But ultimately, I was able to sit down with... Uh, uh, a man named, we call him Dr. Jack, Dr. Arthur Jackson. Dr. Arthur Jackson is an old school Kappa from Pi. If you're from the South, you already know the Kappas from Pi are notorious. That's Morehouse. And he's very eccentric. Like he loves telling stories about how when he does his mission work, he's doing dental work for people who don't have cash, but they're willing to give me their goat. Mm. So these are the types of stories he, he has. You know, you, you would, if you were to see him, you would have no idea that he is a doctor and that he's a brilliant chemist at that and an amazing artist. You wouldn't know that. Uh, he kind of has like the Anthony Hamilton beard, you know, kind of straggly, just, just kind of disheveled all the time. But classic chemist in the disheveled speech where it's, it's coming, it makes sense, but it's going to be sporadic. It's just going to keep coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so him, he was my, my real conversation. Again, he sits me down and he pulls out like legal pad paperwork and draws like two circles on the thing, on the paper. He puts the dollar sign and he puts a community, like he puts three stick figures inside of the other circle. So a dollar sign in one circle and stick figures in the other circle that represented the community. He said, why are you here in Dillon And I just sat there and looked at him, you know, because it's Dr. Jack. It don't matter what you answer, it's not going to be the right answer. So I've learned by this point, just let Dr. Jack talk. He has a point and it's going to make perfect sense. So Dr. Jack said, if you came to dental school for the money, you can get money anywhere. If you came to dental school to help the community, there are a million ways to help the community without going through Meharry. So again, I ask you, why are you at Meharry? You know, I give the, the perfect answer. You know, I'm here because I believe in my community. I want to be a resource, a killer, this and that and this. He was like, yeah, but what are you going to do to get there through Meharry? Like, you got to stop everything that you're doing. You got to commit to this process. Again, in the back of my mind, committing to this process, but I have a child on the way in about six months. And a child who I know I'm going to support, that wasn't even a question. A woman who I know that I'm going to marry, again, because nobody's going to raise my child for me. It's just not how I was built. So I know these things are going to happen. You're talking to me about studying. And he, he just looked in my eyes. He said, the fact that you have any question about what you have to do to get through this program to this point, this might mean that you're ready to move forward to something else. Mm-hmm. 
that was probably the most polite rejection dismissal I've ever had in my life. Mm. But that self-realization of you can move through this and still get whatever you're trying to get out of life, legacy, impact from those two circles. Um, for what it's worth, in the circle, I chose the community, my impact on the community. That's, that's what I'm going for. But now I got to figure out how to do that because since I was 10 years old, everybody else knew I was going to be a dentist. And that's all I ever knew. You're going to be a doctor. What? How? What? How? Where? Where do you go? I, and I had no idea. So I was just stuck sitting there at that point. So tell me about the conversation, because I want to assume that it's multiple that you had with your parents. Like, oh, I'm leaving dental school and I also am going to be a dad. What was that like? Um, so I'll say three months ago, my mom still asked me, am I considering going back to dental school? So let's, let's talk about you know, that part. You know, she, she just wants baby boy to be that dentist. That's all. Uh, what was that conversation like? You know, my, my dad is a realist. He was like, son, you got a family to take care of. So let me take a step back. So by the time, obviously, I failed that, I knew the family was, was about to be a thing. And my dad knew it as well. So when that last rejection happened, he was ready to, to move forward. My dad didn't care what it had to be. He said, you, you got to get a job. You got a baby you got to feed. I don't care what that looks like. And um, it's your child, not mine. So I'm supporting you. I'm not supporting another family. He said, so I'm your support system. I'm not the system. My dad always made that perfectly clear. So I understood that I had to just get a job. Like that, that was what it was. Um, telling my dad that my then girlfriend was with child over Thanksgiving break. I, I remember it because it was the worst headache I ever had in my life. It was a long drive from Nashville, driving her home to her parents. And because we've known each other since third grade. So we grew up down the street from each other. Um, so I said, I'm going to tell her parents first. I can't let her walk in there by herself. I'm, I'm her covering, right? This is the biblical aspect of it. Yes, we got things out of order, but I'm her covering. It was a long, quiet ride. I think that drive is nine hours, I think. Headache out of this world. I don't think I ate for two days, stressing. And, you know, for, for what it's worth, my, my now in-laws, they just looked at me and said, okay, I know she's going to be fine because of this moment right here. You, like I sat them down at their dinner table at their old home um, and, and told them flat out. Like, I don't think, so she didn't have to say it at all. It was all me talking. Which is commendable. Um, and that's all. And that's all I knew. That's all. There was no choice in that. It was. And before I left her that evening to then go tell my parents, I wasn't going to bring her along to tell my parents. Um, that, that was a conversation I had to have with my parents on my own. Um, you know, her and I had more conversations to make sure that she was OK before I left her. Not that I thought her parents were doing anything crazy. Love my in-laws. Greatest people. The whole community loves my in-laws. So. I didn't think anything else crazy was going to happen, but I just didn't want her to feel alone in those moments. Um, so now to my parents, Reverend Harrison, First Lady Harrison. Uh, at this point, my big brother is home as well. Uh, the Albany State uh, grad there. He, he's there. He knows, you know, it's my brother, right? So he knows. Oh, and his wife is also with child as well at the same time. Go figure. Um, 
So he's just kind of sitting back. He's waiting for this moment to happen. And I bring my parents to the, the it's a buffet counter that we had in our uh, old kitchen that we used to stay at in that house, Meadowbrook. And my dad is standing across from me. He's, he's close enough to where I don't have to scream at him, right? But he's far enough to where he can't grab. I had to protect myself, make sure, because, you know, he old school, you just never know. You never know. <laughs> you know, you know, he might just want to bless me, you know, we're called mm-hmm. a blessing. Uh, my mom is over at the stove. No, she's at the sink washing some dishes. No stove. You know, I heard enough stories about hot water and, and hot drinks and stuff. So nothing can fly. No, so safety first. Head pounding. My head is so tight. Um, and then I just, I just told him like, hey, study is going well, but there's something else I got to start preparing for. And when I told him, he said, oh, okay, well, it's a good thing you're going to be a dentist because you're going to need that money. But that was it. That was it. And from there, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't honestly as bad as I thought it was going to be. You know, looking back on those conversations, my dad felt that it was his responsibility to prepare me for getting out of the house, to prepare me for encountering, encountering moments in life that you didn't prepare for, um, and making you feel as if the choice and the decisions are yours. And it's like at that point, clearly I'm a grown man, quote unquote, and I've made a choice and decision to do these things. So, all right, handle your business. Do what you got to do. So your your parents know that you got to get on the way. At that point, they think you're still going to, they still think you're going to be a dentist. Then the test scores come out. You have this really sobering conversation with someone that you respect at Meharry. Was the decision not to continue instantaneous after you were essentially uh, dismissed even though he put it on your plate, but it was a dismissal in the sense, um, an eloquent one, but a dismissal nonetheless. So was it a light bulb moment at that, that point for you where you were like, okay, I'm, I need to do something else? Yes. The, the, the choice was really, all right, I just got to go make money. Mm-hmm. And if that means that I'm not doing it because I'm not at Meharry, so be it. That was really more so what the choice and the, what was going on. I got to make money. So it happened. I walked out. Test score was what it was. All right, what am I going to do? So how did you pivot professionally? So I say that the decision was easy to walk away, but I wasn't walking away to anything. Mm. I was walking away to a woman who told me she loved me. And Markeisha showed me that. That's that's my wife's name, Markeisha. Um, And she showed me she loved me through whatever was going to happen. She was there. Uh, All all she knew was I was going to do what it took to provide. She felt that she said she knew that since high school that I was going to be a provider in whatever it took. Sure, whatever. I don't know how she knew that. Um, but I was lost. That was definitely the lowest moment in my life. I failed everybody who ever depended on me. Every teacher who helped me write my valedictorian speech. Every baseball, football coach I ever had. Um, Dr. Anderson, the first doctor um, who I shadowed, uh, and for what it's worth, definitely want to mention these times, a white doctor, Caucasian doctor, you know, Dr. Anderson, amazing, and Dr. Johnson, um, an African-American doctor um, who really believed in me, gave me one of my scholarships going into school. Man, I done failed all these people. And again, I'm not going back to Augusta with just a family in hand. So what am I doing now? Because there's no more going back to the house now. It's not just me by myself. 
Now it's woman, child, in me. And the, again, the way my dad built us, if you got to come back home, you can do that, but you're not coming back home to be comfortable. Mm. You're coming back home because there's a choice decision. Problems happen, things happen, but we got to move forward. And I did, that was a pressure that I didn't quote unquote need, but I still had that pressure in the back of my mind. So what was I going to do? The pivotal moment came for me and my, my now wife, because we, we've gotten married now, child is born at this point. We're living up in, in uh, Nashville. She's working at a daycare, making, uh, making her money. She's at work and it's just me at the child at the house, me and the child. And I'll say that added to a lot of the things that he and I carry through to this day, I believe. Um, but I'm literally sitting in the middle of my floor in the kitchen with my head down, literally head down, whatever you could draw up in a movie with me just sitting on the floor, baby napping upstairs. And I was just sitting there and my line brother called and line brother, know me since day one at Fort Valley State University. Um, one of those dudes who I could just be honest, bare naked truth with, because he and I, we, we've had those moments beyond fraternity stuff. It's, we know each other. And he reiterates to me something that Dr. Jack said. It was, hey, X, all you ever said in life is that you wanted to have an impact on the community. That impact can come through whatever career you decide to step into because you've X. X makes everything work. Whatever X want to do, X can do. So about, about a week later, I wound up going to a job fair. Um, I wound up interviewing with a finance company and I wound up getting a, an offer to join the finance company, but they're not going to pay me to during the time that it takes to get the license to work in finance. So while I'm studying for that test, again, another national test, and I'm already freaking out because I've just failed three national tests, I put that job off. I'm like, man, I'm not. You need me to take a national test? Nope. National test ain't for black folks. Black folks fail national tests. Y'all all against me? No. So at this point, I'm just working as a night auditor at a Marriott property. Mm. And I'm like, man, I mean, I guess I could move up in management here at Marriott. I mean, you get free travel stuff, right? Maybe. I don't know. It's, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make myself settle for this moment and make this be all right. But it just isn't that that moment isn't okay with me. Marriott, you know, it, it was it was good for what it had to be. Again, I'm working. I've got a steady check coming. I'm helping to contribute to the, uh, the the upbringing and the financial needs of my child. So, you know, I'm checking that box, but I'm not being filled myself. So I double back to that finance company that gave me the offer. And then they give me the study material. I passed that test. And, and man, I sweated the entire time on that test. All I did was the same exact stuff I always do. I'm going to remember this entire book and they're going to ask me some question from this book and I'm going to do good. So I did well enough to get into that. And now I'm in finance and, oh, this is a 100% commission job. Mm. Okay. So I can't let go of Marriott yet. So now I'm working two jobs for the better part of a year and a half or so. Again, I'm not going back home. I got to take care of my family, but I'm starting to enjoy this thing about finance. I linked up with another alpha, James Horton. He was about my age, Fisk University. Um, and he helped me understand what finances mean to legacy, how finances have shaped the plight of Black Americans from 
he was like, hey, you remember that scene in the Malcolm X movie when Malcolm X daddy was, uh, was killed? Like, you remember they didn't pay that insurance money out, right? Because they say he committed suicide. I was like, they sure did, did they? He was like, yeah, but you remember he was busting the back of the head? He was like, just think about all those times that we didn't receive proper insurance because they decided to discriminate against us despite the fact that we were paying for it all those times. He's like, so when you're going out there to sell that insurance, you're part of that legacy. You are what is supposed to correct those things that took away money out of our community. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow. So we doing this. Like we, we are a part of that community building right now. huh? And then there become layers and legs to this. I, I get kind of good at this selling thing. Not to mention, now my friends are starting to graduate dental school and medical school. So now I'm a personal financial planner and I'm getting, you know, some clients from some of my classmates and I'm talking about these legacy builders and I'm like, oh, this is my connection to the community. I'm now feeding back these informational tools of why term life makes sense, why whole life makes sense, what what a Roth is, what a 401k is. Oh, you're a small business owner because you're, you know, you're a dentist. So the key man, like there's a whole bunch of things that I never knew anything about outside of finance. Because the only thing I knew in finance was you get a checkbook and a debit card, make sure you don't overspend, because once you start overspending, you're going to get charged more than you got. Boom. So that became my light bulb moment. Oh, that finance is the key to helping my community. And that's what that moment really propelled me to move forward to a lot of the things I do in this time. And one of the last things I'll add in that moment, that was around, that was around 2012-ish timeframe, that although I'm now married, although I'm still now a father, I'm still at a point where I'm a little afraid to tell my parents certain things. I'm still a little afraid to tell my mom no on certain things. So my wife flat out told me, she said, hey, if you're going to be a man in this house, I'm going to need you to be able to tell your mama no sometimes. Mm. It's like... See, lady, why you? She ain't doing nothing wrong. She just want to cook sometimes, you know. Just, but that was that was a, a key moment, and I realized that saying no freed me up from holding up everybody else's expectations for me. And I also realized that saying no wasn't as it was just like when I told them that, hey, I have a child on the way. It was something that was kind of different for them, but it. Yeah. Just, they didn't take it as, oh, you disrespectful. Now you about to get a whooping. Like it was a, it was a, oh, okay, all right. Well, go figure it out. Then if, if you're not gonna do it my way, just go figure it out your way. And that was fine with me because again, I'm that arrow. He done shot me out. I gotta take care of this. I gotta make this happen, and it's gonna happen. Um, so yeah, all of that. 2012 was probably one of the strongest years for me personally. I, I definitely hit rock bottom, and then I had to build all that back up. And there's so many different like. Points I want to highlight uh, from this part of your journey, but I'll try to keep it brief. Um, but one of the things that I think is important to discuss is 26ers, you know, the people, our community of the show and what we deem a 26er to be. We struggle. I think we sh- doubly struggle with failure and not meeting the mark for the exact reason that you said. Many of us are like the great hope of our community. and. You know, when you have grown up being that kid who's driven, gets good grades, who's athletic, who's respectful, who's involved, people pour into you because they want to see you make it. Even those who have not walked the path uh, that you're about to walk, like the dudes from the hood, they're all rooting for you. So one outgrowth of that is that when you're successful, 
all the worlds of stage, right? Like everybody's there cheering you on. But at the other end of the spectrum, when things don't quite work out, because mm. some of it is, I don't know if, I, don't, I won't say all of it is self-imposed because we've all had different experiences. But in my experience, a lot of those feelings around failure and having disappointed a community has been self-imposed, right? Because all we're thinking is like, all these people did whatever they did and raised offerings. You know, they've, they've invested in me in a lot of different yeah. ways. And I did not complete the course. And I was talking about this recently, once again, with a Black therapist. And she was saying um, that this is a common theme with Black professionals that she treats. This idea that like failure is magnanimous, like so much bigger for us because we got everybody on our backs. Right. And we're carrying everybody. And we already are in a culture where there's this narrative of like, I'm the hope and dream of the slave. And my ancestors Mm -hmm. bought this dream and we stand on their shoulders. And I believe all of that. But sometimes I think the negative uh, effects of that is we don't allow ourselves to fail and realize that that is a part of life. Pivoting is a part of life. We ain't got no safety safety net too. So that's for a lot of us, that's part of it. But um, the gravity of that, I think sometimes it takes us longer to bounce back from disappointment and failure because we've had this singular focus of like, not only can I not disappoint myself and, and implode my own vision, but I can't disappoint all these people who've been rooting for me my through my entire journey. Um, so I definitely wanted to raise that because I don't, I definitely know you're not alone. And, and what you were feeling. And ironically, another conversation I had rec- recently is about Black adults having a hard time setting, still setting boundaries and using the word no with the people that they respect. Yeah. And I, I think that is a cultural issue, right? Like we've just taught that you respect your elders, you do what they ask, and you probably got it like super bad because you grew up in the South because y'all play by a different <laughs> set of rules. So... Yes, sir. No, sir. It's even intensified there um, that it's hard. You you could be paying your own bills and building this life, being a family man, being able to stand up and say, no, no, like that. Okay, mom or dad, I'm going to need you to take a step back here. That's not going to work for me Um, or my family. It's it's really hard, I think, for people to come into their own in that way. And these are things that I hope over time for the health uh, for our own mental health and emotional well-being um, and for the health of our families. Uh, that I hope that's a cultural shift that happens, right? There are more conversations around these things um, to alleviate what I deem to just be unnecessary pressure in a lot of ways. No, I completely agree. Um, like so much to the point where my parents even recognize that I tr- I'm raising my son with, with some differences and that being one. Like literally, I tell my son that the problem isn't the failure. The problem is when you shut down after you fail. Like, I I don't mind you failing, son. I just want you to fail and then let's start rebuilding again. Just don't shut down on me. So I I try to give him that net. That's amazing. Um, And the other thing I wanted to bring up that you talked about is the light bulb moment, like a year and a half after you left Meharry, because I think we've been like singularly focused on this vision of like, this is what I want to do with my life. And I'm taking these classes. I'm going to go to this school. Then I'm going to go to this school after that. Um, Because that has been the only vision that we often know for ourselves. When it doesn't work out, we think that the next, the vision for the next chapter is supposed to crystallize right away. And when it doesn't, you're like, 
sitting on the floor like, well, what's wrong with me that I don't know what step I should take next? Because the one I thought I was going to take is not going to work. Now what I do, when really the reality of it is what you experience is much more common, right? It's unusual to come out of something that you've been working towards forever and it didn't work. And you're like, haha, I know what my next move is. Um, This is really human. Like this is human nature that it takes time. And I have this conversation with people all the time who tell me, I don't know what to do. I, I don't. I thought I was going to do this. That's not. I thought I was going to marry this person. Thought this was going to happen. Um, I thought this career was going to work out, and I don't know what's next. And one thing I know because I've seen it happen in my own life. I've seen it happen with a hundred guests on this show. Is that you may not know today, but if you just stay the course, a new vision will make itself clear to you. It it never fails. It happens all the time. I mean, and that vision isn't something that that you you plan or you design. Right. It, it just, it starts to take shape. It starts to form. It just, it, it happens when the right connections start to, it just starts to happen. Um, so yeah, it, it was there. Yeah, it's almost just like the laws of nature. At some point, things are going to start to click. You're going to get these phone calls, you know, and, and things happen. Um, so you, and also another thing about your story that's great, it's just the network, right? Like, you have these folks that you went to school with. You don't necessarily, you're not practicing dentistry, but they are your client base, right? Because of those connections, which is why I also believe that everything in our lives work together for our good for, at the end of the day. Fact. All of it is just pushing you into whatever your destiny and purpose is supposed to be. All of it is an integral part of the story. Even when it doesn't feel like it, at mm-hmm. some point you got 2020, like hindsight, when we're like, oh, okay, like now it makes sense why that chapter was a part of this, even though at the time it was like, I'm all off the path, right? right. Um, so it's important to, to mention that as well. But your your financial career has continued to evolve. So tell me what that looks like today. So career-wise, now I've, I've moved back to Georgia just because we, we wanted to be closer to family. Um, so I'm just on the north side of Atlanta. And it's, I should note, when we first moved here, my job was willing because things were clicking and I was doing so well there, they were willing to let me work from Georgia with the Tennessee office. Mm. I just, you know, but that came with the commitment of driving back and forth for like once a week, I had to go to the Chattanooga office, which was the closest one, um, just to check in numbers, all that stuff. Um, so started that. And then I realized that was just, that was just too much. That was crazy. Um, so I started doing other job searches, want to do finance, but not want to rebuild the hundred percent commission network again. So I'm trying to figure out what that looks like. And this is where, where God shows up. Literally the recruiter from my current financial firm found my resume on, um, a job site, a job board and gave me a call and said, Hey, I saw your resume. I want you to interview you. So I wound up joining that firm. And that is more of a, just to keep from kind of mentioning their name because this this whole other laws and things about that for finance. Um, that's a trading firm. So it's not personal finances anymore. Now I'm talking about trade. Now I'm talking about actual literal stocks. That's another leg of something that I knew nothing about. The closest I knew about actual investments was some guy who showed up at my dad's church a long time ago who tried to rip off all the members. So that guy was bad. 
Okay, just can we just pause right there? Does every black church have this story of like some guy coming in and trying to scam everybody? Because I promise you, I feel like every church I've ever been to has this story. I mean, it's honestly when you think about the the psychology behind religion and the religious dogma, it's an easy pool of people once you earn their trust. Yes. So now you come in and you quote a few scriptures. And oh yeah, your checkbook, don't forget that next time you see those things, it just makes for the setup, unfortunately. Of course, that's more on those people. I had to digress there because I swear. Yeah, it's just a story like this. So, you know, and also that was in the back of my mind too. I was like, if if I'm going to come up before my people, I have to realize that it's gonna be on me to be truthful and honest because these are things they don't know. They are Mm -hmm. they are wholeheartedly trusting me at this point which was perfectly fine with me. Um, the one thing that I, I, I literally say this out loud is if there's ever to be an issue that arises with Nicholas Xavier Harris in the first, it will not be because of money. Mm-hmm. There, there's nothing in my nature or in my bones that wants somebody else's dollars. It's just, it's kind of repulsive to me. I don't, I, I don't know. It's just, that just is what it is. But, um, but yeah, so back to your question. What does my career in finance look like now? So now I'm at a finance company. I'm learning about stocks and trading. And now I'm learning about this new thing called options. And this new thing about calls and puts. And it's just the whole world of it. I get this big machine in front of me that has a color chart that's constantly going up and down, down and up. Like, what is, okay. And it's all starting to click. So now to the point where I've learned those things, I'm now at the point where I work in what you call equity compensation. Again, mm-hmm. something I never knew anything about. But in, a, in layman's terms, this is the point in which companies pay their employees in stock. And by paying those employees in stock, that allows them some ownership. Um, within that ownership, excuse me, within that ownership, you know, there are levels to it. The, the more the company um, is trying to retain you or the higher your position is, um, the more likely they are to, to pay you more in stocks. So they start to pick all those things up and stock, stock equity. stock. I mean, it's like the coolest thing in the world to me when I think about the fact that, oh, you could, I could be working in a startup. You could give me these shares for 50 cents. And now one day you're Tesla. And I have clients like that. They have Tesla shares at $5 because they were there from the beginning and there are other startups and things I see it on. And again, I, I have these conversations now at Thanksgiving, my cousin-in-laws are coming up to me. Hey, uh, Nick, this is what I'm thinking about doing with my 401k. Does this make any sense? Hey, bro, let's talk about it. I got classmates who are saying, Hey, Nick, I see that you're savvy with, with finance. Does, does this make any sense? What books and things can I read? So again, about being a service to my community, just the information of finance alone, I've gained so much that I'm able just to funnel back to, to kind of just put people in the right direction, make connections for people. I don't have any personal clients of my own, um, but that's okay. I, I don't want any um, at this point. But to be able to bring those layers to conversations, I now have friends who are trying to consider doing startups. So now it's like, hey, what do you know about structuring this into you know, a, a contracting position. So now I understand those different levels to it. Um, furthermore, being within my career also gives me the exact same flexibility 
that I wanted when I wanted to be a dentist. Mm. I was trying to figure out as a dentist, you know, how do I get back to the community? Because I have to have set hours because I have to be able to to use my career as a pivot point to to open doors for different conversations. So now, because of my career, the conversations I'm able to have, I'm having some pretty deep and meaningful conversations in the community that I'm I'm absolutely proud of. Um, And I'm proud that my son gets to see me do it because he just the things that I do. He's mimicking them. Mm-hmm. And it's in a, a very weird way. Like um, my son came to me two weeks ago and said, hey, dad, because of COVID, because of how we had to restructure some things at school, we don't have any clubs at school. But one of the initiatives at school is about being kind to others. I want to create a club at school about being kind, which picks right up on the fact that he saw that when there was racial tension in the community, I joined the diversity and inclusion uh, committee, which was the first one ever for the school system. And he saw the work because he's going with me to these meetings. He's going with me to the frat meetings. He's going with me to the diversity and inclusion committee meetings. He's seeing us lay the groundwork for building a committee, for designing something, for being impactful. So I'm still having that impact that when I was sitting on the floor speaking to my LB, like, I just want to be impactful. Like, like I'm, I'm meant to be here for those reasons. And you know what I love about, well, I love a lot of things about your story. Um, but what I love about your relationship with your son, uh, but even before that, the way you felt an obligation to cover your now wife when she was your girlfriend and expecting. And, and while you've evolved as the head of your household in the covering and, you know, she called you out, you know, on some things and all of that but you knew that you had to be in a position to cover and lead. And it's so, because there's so much this like story about, you know, fractured families or, or black men having an inability to stand up, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and protect black women and this, that, and the third, and we don't have fathers in the home and all this stuff. While you may be raising your son in some ways that are different and not conventional from maybe your parents' point of view, your father most certainly laid the foundation with you on leading, mm-hmm. right? On how to lead your family and set, you know, your progeny, your, your legacy, the, the people coming after you, set them mm-hmm. in the right direction. And now you've taken that and you built upon it with your son. And it almost makes me emotional thinking about what your son is going to become, right? Because you're now exposing him to things that a lot of kids are not getting. And he's obviously you know, taking it in and adapting that, um, you know, now even to be so young. And also I think what's really important that I wanted to highlight is the conversations that you're having with professionals and relatives in your circle, because a lot of times, even though many of us may out earn our parents, right. Um, in the community, or, you know, we're doing really well for ourselves. Sometimes our approach to money is what we saw, right. Growing up. And what that often is, is like, get you a good job, stick with it, put money, you know, away for your retirement, retire and collect your pension. Many of us, not all, but many of us are not exposed to diversifying our portfolio. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, taking a job where the salary may not be the highest, but you do have the stock options or some equity stuff. Or how do I, you know, flip my retirement money? What should I put over here? What should be in the 401k? Should I max out my Roth IRA? All of these things, like people are not, you could be making really great money 
be in these really great jobs that everybody's cheering you on for, and you're still not at a place of having the acumen that your white counterpart in the same job three desks down from you may have because we didn't necessarily grow up with the exposure. Um, so the, the fact that you are setting people up to create generational wealth and build legacies in a, in a field that you didn't even imagine for yourself when you mm-hmm. were in school is incredible. And let alone a field I didn't imagine in an area that I thought was unattainable. Mm-hmm. Whenever I thought about finance, all I thought about was math. Oh, man, I hate math. Like it was just calculus this or pre-cal- whatever it is. And then you realize the, the math of money is math and money are not the same. Mm-hmm. That, so to run away from something, to now be back at it, to, to be doing well enough in it, to be supporting a family, to be doing all those different things, um, it, it speaks a lot to, uh, to God's plan for the situation. Absolutely. Um, so you've given like 70 of these stories already, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um, I think the one story that I'll share in this moment that is really moving things forward in the next, this next phase of my life and being um, what somebody called me a community activist one time um, was the moment in which there was a recording of my son's school superintendent uh, calling a group of Black people the N-word. Mm-hmm. This came out through court proceedings in which he's being sued for the wrong for termination um, of an elderly Black woman uh, who, she's, she's a great woman. I've met her conversation, all that. But it came a time for us to stand up in the Board of Education meeting, town hall, everybody's there, Everybody is weighing in their emotions on what needs to happen, how you need to do these things. And I took that time to stand up and and speak. Because in this moment, this was a couple of years ago, in this moment, um, I had accepted the fact that I'm being placed in positions for a reason. And that reason is more often than not bigger than myself. And I stood in that moment because I had just had a conversation with Again, another frat brother. He's a superintendent. And another, uh, that was Craig D. Lockhart, and another brother who's a, a school counselor, uh, Brother Joe Lee. And I had conversations with them about what should I expect from this moment? What should we be asking for? What are the things that are going on with this school system that I'm unaware of because this isn't my field? And I stood up in that moment for what I felt was my community, not being the voice of the community, because we're standing in an area that I didn't grow up in. I don't know every Black person in the city, so no one Black person is going to speak for all Black people. So I didn't want to take on that banner. But I charged that school board with making real tangible changes that could be felt. And out of nowhere, I actually quoted Malcolm X and, and told them, you know, don't pull the knife halfway out of my back and tell me that you're helping me. You know, you got to pull it all the way out. We got to heal this wound. We got to build progress. And again, true fashion, I woke up the next day. I'm in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with that quote. And again, to me, it was just a moment to stand up for my people, to stand in the gap for somebody who was feeling like I felt and to let the powers that be know that I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. So it's just something, again, that just had to happen. And, and of course, now we're still moving forward. We, that, 
guy has long been removed, replaced with a great guy. I was able to have input on his hiring to an extent. I'm now part of that diversity inclusion committee within the school system. Um, I'm very active on several other school committees. Um, so that moment led to a lot of my conversations that I'm having today about economic development and how that comes down and trickles down into the school system. So that that is the moment that that I'll share for this instance. Mm, that's a that's a great great example, especially because you know oftentimes activism can take on many forms, but when we get to a certain level in our lives and careers, sometimes it gives you pause to not only make a statement or charge the powers that be, but do so in a very public fashion where it's on the record. Um, and I think some some folks struggle with that. Like, how do I balance who I am with professionally, who I am professionally with stepping into activism in some form? And, and will this affect my career in, in some way? I think a lot of people have that uh, concern when they work in certain fields, you know, the, the finance, you know, fields and things like that. Um, so I think that that is a great, example. Um, but shifting gears a bit, before I, I let you get out of here, tell me a bit about your work with the foundation arm of Fort Valley. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that one up. Um, this was a moment that it came up because I honestly, I talk too much. So my son, he's, uh, he does things that just, it shocks me every day because he, he does these things and I don't, I don't ask him to do it. I don't, some things I don't even want him to do, but it's amazing. So sports is his thing. Well, he really loves to draw. So I really encourage art, but he picked up and, and really loves sports. So with that said, we wound up going to the Junior Olympics um, for track. And it was being held at North Carolina A&T, um, Aggie Pride, all that good stuff. And their campus was beautiful. So I called my old counselor at Fort Valley, uh, Mama J, the one who, you know, helped me figure out that one course and got me on track and got that. And said, hey, Mama J, what is so different about this school in Fort Valley? And because they just had, obviously, the funds there for different things. And she said, you know what? The guy who helped raise those monies is now the executive director of the major fundraising arm for Fort Valley. You should mm -hmm. talk to him. Two conversations in, he's like, hey, Nicholas, I would love for you to join the board. You're obviously excited about Fort Valley, you wanted to contribute to raising money for Fort Valley, come aboard. So I'm less than one year in now on this board. Um, that's Dr. Anthony Holliman um, for reference there. And at this point, I recognize my position, right? Like I'm the new one on the board. I'm meant to be, I guess, exuberant and excited. But the bigger play is I'm meant to be learning. Uh, I need to learn how to do these major fundraisers, learn how to these capital fundraising projects, learn how to make these connections with other resources and, and making sure that we're bringing newness to the school in different ways that brings monetary as well as aesthetic value to the university. So right now, that, that's what I'm doing. In this first year on the board, you know, I'm already a part of one major fundraiser that's taking place through my fraternity. We're having our uh, 75th chapter anniversary. So we're already committing to raising a large sum of money. So I brought that to the board. Um, I brought a few other resources to the board. So at this point, I'm really trying to be a connector at this point in my life. I think that I've been putting a lot of tools in my bag, but it's, it's time to start unloading some of those tools so I can start refilling it up with some things that's going to take me to that next level. So at this point, right now, the board is just going to get all these tools dumped on. 
I'm just here to, to link them like, hey, I know somebody trying to do this and take that diversity and inclusion aspect. You know, when all this, uh, this outbreak happened uh, and everybody wanted to lean into blackness, my, my, uh, my job wanted to figure out how could they be more impactful. One thing that was raised was the, the lack of diversity in your internship pool. So I spoke up, hey, I sit on the uh, Fort Valley State University Foundation Committee, which is the major fundraising arm uh, for Fort Valley. If you guys are looking for somebody, I have a university that can supply students for your internship. So bringing that resource, which I was able to connect them. Um, so that is, that's all I'm about at this point, is making those connections, because I know this is what this is what we need. So that's how I'm utilizing that platform and that stage in life right now. That's great. And since you brought up uh, connections, if people want to connect with you after this interview, where can they find you online? Oh, man. Um, so Facebook, of course, uh, Nicholas Xavier Harrison. Um, I, I just wanted to put the first there. So it's I. Um, then on Instagram, I am X underscore the number two, so, well, the word two, T-W-O underscore daddy. So X underscore two daddy. So that's X2, that's little Xavier. We let him go by Xavier now um, on IG. And then, of course, LinkedIn. Uh, you, you might not recognize the guy there right off. Um, I I'm, I'm, have a little less hair there, but definitely on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, just reach out to me. I'm definitely always open to a conversation a few emails, a few texts, because it's all about networking. It's all about growing. It's all about that next phase. Absolutely. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope now in hindsight, you realize you had a lot to bring uh, to the December 26th podcast. Man, thank you all. Uh, thank you, Marcus, for staying on top of me and just kept, you know, bro, you could do this. So thank you for, for making me honestly face some of the conversation that I honestly haven't had in public forum fashion. So thank you for that. And thank you for doing what you all are doing because these stories are definitely helping. We appreciate it. We appreciate you coming on. Shout out to your parents. Shout out to your in-laws. Shout out to your wife. And shout out to your baby boy. Because I feel like all of them are integral parts of the story. We got them in the background. I'm glad you decided to, to take the interview here. We talked about changing locations. But every time you, you mentioned your son, it was so great just to look up and see his smile oh. and look up and see your wife as well. So she she knows, too, that she's in the shot. Not only is she in the conversation, she's in the <laughs> frame right behind you. So she will be acknowledged uh, throughout this interview. So, um, But I've thoroughly enjoyed this, like I said. And I'm glad we finally got a chance to do it. And um Looking forward to making that trip to, to Georgia that we were supposed to make pre-COVID. That was the uh, one I wanted. Yes, and talking to some of your connections there, which you helped us with before. Um, so that, that's going to be the, ne the next phase of us building uh, in this way. But to our listeners, you know, we're all about building connections here. We're all about the network. We need to do better, um, I think, as a community of not being afraid to reach out and ask questions when you have them or if there's something that you don't know and if somebody comes on this show and they've got the acumen or the knowledge that you're looking for, don't be afraid to send a cold email. Uh, other people do it all the time. We need to do a bit more of that as well. Um, we're a community here. A lot of us, there are certain ties that bind. We always say we're not a monolith, but there are certain parts of our story that resonate amongst many of us. So if something has resonated with you out, out of Nicholas's story, don't be afraid to reach out. He's already said he's all about connection and all about community. Uh, make sure you like, share, subscribe. Even if you don't reach out, tell somebody about this episode. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care.
Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 